0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We have the privilege tonight to embark upon a study of the book of Hosea. We're going to start in Deuteronomy and make our way there. There There's certain words in the Bible that you just need to be aware of and have a firm grasp of. Words such as faith and grace and righteousness well, this evening, I want to introduce you to a Hebrew word that you also need to have a thorough understanding of, and that word is hesed, translated in your Bible as loving kindness. That translation comes from the 16th century and the publication of the English Bible under the translation of William Tyndale. The word is used a total of 245 times in the Old Testament, and the word is often used in the context of cutting a covenant, of making a covenant. And the word alludes to a lasting loyalty and faithfulness in fulfilling the obligations of a covenant. Now, don't be confused. This does not speak of a a sterile or a stale keeping of the obligations, but rather this speaks of a close, intimate relationship that binds and unites covenant partners together. In fact, this word is used in the Old Testament of the most intimate relationships that there are between a father and a son, between a husband and his wife. The term hesed signifies an unfailing love, a persistent love, a steadfast love. And while the term hesed only appears six times in 14 chapters in the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea is a vivid and picturesque portrayal of God's hesed, his steadfast love, his covenant love. And that's why I want you to look with me in your Bible at Deuteronomy chapter 7, specifically verse 6. Follow along as I read. These are the words of Moses. He says, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What's the basis for this choosing? Well, first, it's it's not that they were more numerous. It says Yahweh did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. In fact, you were the fewest of the peoples. But look at verse 8. but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Because of God's sovereign love for his people and because of his faithfulness and commitment to the covenants that he had established with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he acts. And we see that in verse eight. It's because of this that Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. What's the conclusion of all this? Look at verse nine. You shall know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Turn with me to the book of Hosea. if we had to encapsulate the theme of the book of Hosea to a single sentence, I would provide you with this. The covenant love and loyalty of God is expressed to his people, Israel, despite their spiritual adultery and breaking of the covenant. That's a mouthful. Let me rewind that statement. The message, the theme of the book of Hosea is that God demonstrates his covenant love, his covenant loyalty to his people despite their spiritual adultery and breaking of the covenant. Well, how is the covenant loyalty and the covenant love of God demonstrated in the book of Hosea? Well, this evening I want to present you with two primary ways that the covenant love of God is expressed so that you would know that Yahweh is the faithful God and the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people. A little historical background that you need to be aware of in terms of studying the book of Hosea. Hosea heads 12 prophets known as the minor prophets, not minor because of the insignificance of their message, but because of the brevity of their length. Hosea is the first of the 12 that has been commonly known as the book of the Twelve. And the ancient manuscripts, this was one book that was patched together. But here, in the English text, we have them as 12 separate books under the respective authors. Hosea was a prophet in the 8th century to the northern kingdom of Israel. His contemporaries included Amos, who also prophesied to the northern kingdom, and Isaiah and Micah, who prophesied to the southern kingdom. While well, this message was given in the 8th century BC, this message is vitally pertinent and relevant to our daily lives right now. And I pray that as we study it, you'll see that together. So let's look at these two primary ways that the covenant love of God is expressed. The first way that I want you to be, be aware of that the covenant love of God is expressed is through a vivid, historic illustration. This is Hosea's marriage. Through the historic illustration of Hosea's marriage to the adulterous Gomer, God graphically and clearly reveals his steadfast and enduring love to his idol-prone and spiritually bankrupt wife, Israel. Mark Rooker, an Old Testament commentator says, "'By loving his wife despite her unfaithfulness to him, Hosea is perhaps the ultimate example of the unconditional love that God demonstrates toward his people. If you wanted to encapsulate the message of the book of Hosea to a couple verses, you could do so from Hosea chapter one, verse two and Hosea chapter three, verse one. And that's where I wanna turn our attention now. Hosea chapter one, verse two. Follow along as I read. There it says, When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaken Yahweh. This verse provides us with the initial call and command of God to the prophet. He was to go and take for himself a wife. But the verse goes further. It says he was to take for himself a wife of harlotry. That word harlotry is used here three total times in a single verse, and it alludes to illicit or forbidden sexual relations outside of the covenant bond of marriage. Now, some commentators conclude and propose that Gomer was actually chaste and faithful at the time of this command and that she only became adulterous after the marriage vows had been made. But the clear language of of verse 2 suggests and implies that Hosea the prophet was called to marry a woman who was already known for being sexually promiscuous prior to marriage. And often throughout the Old Testament, God calls his prophets to do unique or unusual or difficult tasks that are representative of a greater spiritual reality. And that's the case that we have here. So why did Yahweh charge Hosea to take such drastic measures in marrying a woman of unfaithfulness? Look back at verse two, the reason is provided. It says, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking Yahweh. Now land cannot commit spiritual harlotry. Land cannot forsake the Lord. Rather, the land here is used as a figure of speech called a metonymy as it stands as a representative for another object, namely the people of Israel. The verb translated commit harlotry here in verse 2, it's often used throughout the Old Testament of the unfaithfulness of the people of God in their relationship with him specifically in their practice in their pursuit of idolatry. This is the divine reason that Hosea was called and commissioned by God to take this wife who was unfaithful, who was an adulteress. Hosea and Gomer's marriage was to provide a vivid example, a solemn testimony pointing to the spiritual infidelity and adultery of the people of Israel. And you'll remember as we have worked sequentially through each of the books of the Old Testament that this was the persistent pattern of the people. Let's take a little jet tour through the Old Testament. Exodus 32, you're all familiar with the account. Right after God miraculously redeems his people from the house of slavery in Egypt, what do they do? They result to syncretistic idolatry. The people bring to Aaron gold articles, and what's he do? He fashions a golden calf. Exodus 32, verse four, he takes them and makes, made them into a molten calf. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Fast forward a little bit there in the wilderness. Did they learn their lesson? no. Numbers 25, verses one through two, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Indeed, they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down before their gods. Fast forward to the time of the judges. Did it get any better? Well, judges tells us there was no king in Israel at that time and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Judges two, verses 11 through 13 says, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, And served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and prostrated themselves before them. What about the northern kingdom of Israel? You'll remember that the northern tribes separated from the southern tribes in the year 931 BC. Did they get a good start? How did they start out? Well, in 1 Kings 12, we see that they had an abysmal start as well under the reign of Jeroboam. Jeroboam built Shechem as the official cultic site of the northern kingdom. And to prevent the people from going to Jerusalem at the three appointed feasts, he established cultic sites in Dan and Bethel, also making two molten calves. I and mean, as you can see through this jet tour throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were very prone to syncretism and idolatry. They were plagued by and characterized by spiritual defection from their covenant God, Yahweh. Furthermore, in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, this committing of flagrant harlotry is identified and defined as forsaking Yahweh. That verb forsake there, it literally means turning your back upon, turning aside from. The people of Israel had turned their back upon the God who loved them and the God who had redeemed them from the house of slavery. And they gave their loyalties and their affections to others. Fast forward to chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3 with me. Hosea chapter three, verse one. Then Yahweh said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress. Even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. If you are one who underlines in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that word again. Go again, Hosea you've loved this woman. You have pursued this woman only to have your heart broken, only to see her give her love and affections to others, only to see her forsake your covenant vows and your family. But go again, Hosea. I mean, use your sanctified imagination here. I mean, from a purely human perspective, think about the heartbreak. The trust that has been shattered. I mean here, Hosea is a faithful man of God who is called to go in love a faithless woman. And they exchange marriage vows. Moreover, she continues her practice of unfaithfulness, and God calls Hosea to go again. Go again. Hosea. Can you consider the betrayal, the broken trust of the most intimate relationship known to man? Perhaps you've been betrayed by someone that you loved, whether that be a close family friend or a family member. You put all your trust in this person put all your eggs in their proverbial basket, so to speak, just to see that trust shattered and come crashing down. Now consider it on an infinitely greater degree. God, the king of the universe, set his love upon Israel Set his affection on this people. However, they consistently and perpetually turned their backs, spurned his lordship, and gave themselves to others. In this verse, we see that the faithful, persistent, enduring love of Hosea towards Gomer mirrors and reflects God's faithful, persistent, and enduring love for his own people. And notice in verse one, the standard of comparison that is given with those words, even as. Go again, Hosea, and love this woman. Even as Yahweh loved the sons of Israel. In the same manner, in the same way, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turned to others, go and love her again. Now, oftentimes, as we've worked throughout the books of the Old Testament, it is the tendency of Christians to to stick up their nose and to wag their heads at the people of Israel I mean, we walk through their, their history, and this is an ongoing 600-year persistent giving of themselves to idols. But friends, let us not merely look at the people of Israel without focusing upon our own lives and taking spiritual inventory of our own lives. Consider this with me. the eternal God set his love upon you in eternity past in Jesus Christ. Ephesians tells us he chose you before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and was born under the law so that he might fulfill the righteous requirement of. And more so than that, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God on Calvary's cross for your sin, satisfying the penal demands of the law. And in time and space in your life, if you were a believer, God has effectually drawn you to himself by his grace. And now that you're in the state of grace, you don't sin, right? Right? Of course not of course not but believer consider this reality when you sin you turn your back on god when you sin you choose the lesser for that which is infinitely more beautiful more glorious more wonderful You spiritually defect from the God who loves you and who bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons that sin is so atrocious, so appalling, so heinous, so perverse, so wicked. It's because of who that sin is against. Because when we sin, we forsake our Lord. When we sin, we commit spiritual adultery. Christian, would this not cause an intense hatred to well up in your heart against sin and its deceitfulness? Next time you're tempted to sin, to become angry with someone after they cut you off, to To whatever whole host of sins that at occasions entangles you, would this thought course through your mind? That sin is defection from God? Would you despise it? Would you forsake it? Would you flee from sin to pursue fidelity and devotion? and loyalty to the one who is worthy of every ounce of it. Christian, make this your life endeavor. John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. He's worthy of every bit of your affections, your loyalties, and your love. One of the ways that the book of Hosea vividly displays the covenant love of God is through this historic illustration, through the marriage of Hosea to the adulterous Gomer. And that brings us to a second way that the covenant love of God is presented in the book of Hosea, and that is the prophetic actualization, the prophetic actualization This is Hosea's message. This is the substance that the shadow of Hosea's marriage pointed to. You see, the marriage of Hosea with Gomer was was real. It was a historical reality, but it was meant to point to the reality that the people of God, in their persistent idolatry, were committing spiritual adultery against the one who entered into covenant with them. This is the message of Hosea. The people had abandoned and forsaken Yahweh. They had committed covenant treason and spiritual adultery. And despite the people's defection from God, God would continue to remain faithful and loyal to his people because of his great love. As we consider Hosea's message, as we consider the prophetic actualization, I want us to look at it from three primary focuses. Three primary focuses. If you want to understand the book of Hosea, nail these down. In reality, if you want to understand the prophets as a whole, memorize these. These are the three primary focuses of the book of Hosea. First focus is this. Israel is indicted for defection from God. Israel is indicted for defection from God. Turn with me to the fourth chapter of Hosea. Looking specifically at the first three verses. This is what the word of God says. It says, listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel. For Yahweh has a contention against the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth or steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing of oaths, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and everyone who inhabits it languishes along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. The Hebrew word for contention in verse one speaks to a lawsuit, a legal proceeding. The people of God have been weighed in the scales of divine justice and have been found wanting. So what were the people of Israel officially charged with in Yahweh's courtroom? In verses one through two, we see that they're charged with their sins of omission in verse one and their sins of commission in verse two. In other words, the attributes, the qualities that were to be characteristic of them, they lacked and were not found amongst the people. And the very things that were only speakable amongst the heathen and the Gentiles, that is what characterized them. Verse one says that there is no truth, steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. And you should notice that while the book of Hosea presents God as the one who is abundant in steadfast love towards his people who retains and remains in that enduring, persistent love, the people of Israel are completely devoid of it. In verse one, these are what the people of God are called to. They are called to be characterized by by truth and fidelity, by steadfast love both to God and to others and for an intimate relational knowledge of God. Verse two tells us that it's not only what the people of God lacked, but the things that actually characterized them that they're charged with. One commentator says, there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. If virtues are absent, then they are replaced by vices. And in verse two, Hosea describes the spiritual and the moral bankruptcy of the people. when he says, there is swearing of oaths, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. And notice how these indictments are fundamentally the key components of the second table of the Decalogue. There's deception, they lie, there's murder, there's stealing, there's adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. In this passage, Israel is indicted by God for covenant defection and treason. And throughout the book of Hosea, there is that illustration of Israel's sin that is so prevalent, and that is their persistent idolatry is likened to and compared with spiritual adultery. Look down in your Bible at verse 10 of chapter 4. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says, they will play the harlot, but not break forth in number because they have forsaken Yahweh to keep harlotry. Look down at verse 12, my people ask their wooden idol and their diviner's wand declares to them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot departing from their God. And brothers and sisters, again, you can't emphasize this enough. Let us not just look in a historical survey of the people of Israel and acknowledge that they departed from their God, but we must understand our own proclivities, our own tendencies in our own life. It's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, right? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's a song that we sing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's absolutely essential that we possess a biblical anthropology and understand the own fickleness, the own mutability, the own vacillation of our own hearts we need to understand that we are like sheep, prone to wander, prone to leave the paths of righteousness, but Christian. Though you must understand that you are a sheep and you are prone to wander, I would encourage you to cast your gaze to the good shepherd. Provides for his flock, who protects his flock, who cares for his flock, who leads them in righteous paths and protects them from all the dangers, toils, and snares. Verse 16 of chapter four. Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. Can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in a large field? The people of Israel are compared to a stubborn and an obstinate cow that refuses to submit to his master's yoking and instruction. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Verse 18, they play the harlot continually. Fast forward to chapter six with me. Chapter six, verse seven but like Adam, they have trespassed against the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Like Adam disobeyed the command of God in the garden, so too the people of Israel had transgressed the covenant of God. Hosea 7. Hosea 7 4. They are all adulterers. Turn to Hosea 9. Do not be glad, O Israel, with rejoicing like the peoples, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Chapter 10, Chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Hosea 13. Verse 9, it is to your ruin, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. It is to the people of Israel's demise, to their ruin, to their destruction, that they have forsaken, that they have turned against their God. Their help from ages past. Clearly, Just from a cursory reading of verses, you can see that one of the primary focuses of the book of Hosea is the spiritual defection of the people of Israel. Just like Gomer was guilty of physical adultery and infidelity, so too the people of Israel have defected spiritually from their God and committed spiritual adultery. The year was 1967. A plane landed on the runway of JFK during the midst of the turbulent and tumultuous continuation of the Cold War. There was a host of reporters who jostled for position to to see the people stepping off of this plane. And stepping off this plane was a woman who greeted the reporters saying, hello there, everybody. Very happy to be here. The woman who offered that statement was the only daughter of Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. At a press conference shortly thereafter, Svetlana, Stalin's daughter, denounced the Soviet regime, publicly burnt her Soviet passport and declared her father a moral and spiritual monster. Thus Svetlana became the greatest defector of the Cold War. Of such high prominence and status within the hierarchy of the Soviet Union, Stalin's daughter defected and totally renounced everything that her father stood for. In the same way that Svetlana defected from the Soviet Union, when God's people forsake, when they abandon, when they defect from Yahweh, they transfer their loyalties and their devotion to another. It is a renouncing of one's previous loyalties and commitments in pursuit of another. That's what spiritual defection is, brothers and sisters. And you can see from this brief survey that it's one of the primary focuses of the book of Hosea. Well, as a result of Israel's spiritual defection, we come to a second primary focus of the book, which is this. Israel is sentenced to chastisement by God. Because of the spiritual adultery and because of the wickedness that pervaded the people of Israel, God sentences Israel to punishment and chastisement, most notably in the form of the exile. Just as a loving father disciplines his son whom he loves, Yahweh chastises and disciplines his people by bringing upon them the curses of the covenant. And you'll remember through our study of the Old Testament that in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, there are blessings that are pronounced for obedience and there is judgment that is pronounced for disobedience. And as a result of God's covenantal promises and Israel's spiritual defection, God is going to judge the people Ultimately, climactically, through the removal from the land. Turn with me to the fifth chapter of Hosea. Hosea chapter five. Specifically verses 14 through 15. There we read these words. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. It's in their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And I want you to notice the emphatic nature of who is doing this chastising. Verse 14, I, even I, and the one who takes you away. This is the explicit reference to the upcoming exile that will come shortly through the forces of Assyria. And this reflects the fact of what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10 verses five through six, Isaiah writes, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and command it against the people of my fury to capture spoil and to seize plunder. Assyria would be the instrument in the hands of God upon his people. But do not be mocked, do not be deceived. Yahweh is the one who is executing his judgment through the agency of the forces of Assyria. Look at chapter eight with me. Chapter eight, verse one. Put the trumpet to your mouth. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of Yahweh because they have trespassed against my covenant and transgressed against my law. The war trumpet was to echo throughout the land. Like the swiftness of an eagle, an enemy was coming against the people of Israel because of their spiritual adultery, because they had trespassed against my covenant. They have transgressed against my law. And prior to continuing in our study, I really want to make a direct application concerning the character of God to us this evening. You see, God is the righteous judge of all the earth, Genesis eighteen twenty five. He is perfectly holy, and he cannot even look upon sin, Habakkuk one thirteen he has promised judicial consequences for sin committed against his character and against his law. His perfect justice and holiness demand that he judge sin and sinners and not merely sweep sin under the proverbial rug. And every single one of you needs to be convinced of this this evening. You see, the blessing and the benefit of the forgiveness of sins that is in the gospel and in the new covenant is not accomplished through God merely sweeping your your sins under the rug. You see, because God is perfectly holy and because of his justice, he must punish sin. Either he will punish your sin upon yourself eternally in a place the Bible calls hell, or your sin will be borne by another. But one way or another, wrath will be satisfied. God's justice will be appeased. Either you will bear the guilt and the punishment for your own sins, or your sins will be laid upon another. The God-man, the only mediator between God and man. The Bible says that Yahweh caused the believer's iniquity to fall upon Christ on the cross. The fourth servant song of Isaiah says that it was Yahweh's good pleasure to crush him. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him, that is the suffering servant, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he made him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, this is very common in Christian circles, and I don't want it to be common in your life. If you have cultivated or you have allowed the perspective that your sin is not really that bad, you look at the 10 o'clock news, you read the newspapers, you read the headlines, (laughs) I'm not as bad as them. If you have entertained or if you have cultivated that perspective, then you need to look merely one place, and you need to look to the cross. That's how God views sin. God hates sin as it is opposed to his character and his law. He hates it so much that he put to death his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To satisfy his own wrath. You have two options tonight two roads, two ways. You really only have one way you must repent, you must acknowledge your own spiritual bankruptcy. You must cry out to the one who can save you and you must plead for his mercy. The book of Hosea shows us <laughs> that God is a God full of mercy and compassion and steadfast love. Hosea eight thirteen. We continue along this theme of... Israel being sentenced to chastisement by God. Yahweh has not accepted their sacrificial gifts, but he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. Chapter nine, verse three. They will not remain in the land of Yahweh, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. This isn't speaking of literal Egypt This is speaking of the bondage and the oppression that represented their Egyptian slavery. They were to return, not under their own kingship, their own sovereignty, but under the sovereignty of another. Hosea 9, seven, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Let Israel know this. The days of punishment have come. It no longer remains on the distant horizon in the future. Yahweh is a compassionate, a patient, and a gracious God, but his patience has run out. The time of punishment has officially come. Hosea 11, verse 5. Hosea 11, verse 5 says, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king. Why? Because they refused to return to me. Hosea 12, verse 2. Again, we see the Lord bring this lawsuit against the people, and Yahweh has a contention with Judah, and he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will cause everything to return to him according to his deeds. But before we depart this primary focus, I want to present something to you that is encouraging that undergirds this entire section. One commentator, John McKay, highlights what I wanna share with you. And he says, the Lord's corrective discipline would function in love to recall her and to restore a completely meaningful and fulfilled relationship between them. This reminds us that even in God's discipline and in his chastisement of his people It is inflicted and it is meted out with the loving concern for the well-being of his people. Mark Dever writes, "His, his love is not merely a love of moral indifference. He doesn't just leave his people where they are. Rather, his love is the searching love of the father, the husband, the true friend who wants the best for his beloved. Let's look at a third primary focus of the message of Hosea. Third primary focus is this. Israel is promised restoration by God. Though judgment would inevitably come because of Israel's sin and unfaithfulness to God, his Hesed, his, his covenant steadfast love remains and he will restore his people because of the unconditional and unilateral promises that he has made. To the patriarchs, to David, turn with me to Hosea chapter one. Hosea chapter one and verse 10. Start in verse nine, actually. Speaking of the third child, Yahweh said, name him Loami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. The children of Gomer and Hosea's marital relations were to be significant. They were to be representative of a greater reality. This speaks of a broken relationship between the people of God. You are not my people and I am not your God. But look at verse 10. <laughs> Yet. Yet. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will be in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered there and they will set for themselves one head and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Notice the echoes of the Abrahamic promise and covenant. We studied this many moons ago back in Genesis, but the foundational nature of the Abrahamic covenant is reinforced here. Your offspring will be more numerous than the particles of sand on the seashore. Moreover, this passage alludes also to a reunion of the united in the divided kingdom. Look at that, verse 11. The sons of Judah southern kingdom, and the sons of Israel, the northern kingdom, will be gathered together and they will set for themselves one head. Who is this, you may ask? Turn with me to Hosea chapter three. Hosea chapter three, verse five. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And they will come in dread to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. In the last days, at a future appointed time, Israel will confess their sins. They'll repent from their sins. And they will seek the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it says here that they will seek David, their king. Who is this David? Hosea is writing approximately 250 years after David has died and slept with his father's. Look at that final phrase in verse five. The timing of this restoration and renewal. In the last days. In the last days, Israel will look upon their Messiah, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and seek him and submit to him as their king. Ezekiel 37 reiterates the same truth, and my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes and do them. You see, Paul in Romans 11 says all Israel will be saved and they absolutely will as their hearts are regenerated, as they become partakers of the new covenant that was promised to them originally. But more so than that, they will also be restored in God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Look at Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. Verse 8 How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me, all my compassions are stirred. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not make Ephraim a ruin again for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the West. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will settle them in their houses, declares Yahweh. The Lord says, how can I give you up? How can I surrender you? God's heart is turned over within him. His, his compassions are stirred, literally aroused and awakened within him for his people upon the basis of his covenant love not on the basis of anything noteworthy or remarkable that the people of Israel had done, not because they had first sought him, but upon the basis of his own eternal, steadfast love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you? This is the heart of God towards his people. And this is the heart of God towards you this evening if you are in Christ. You know, so often the time, I think in the Christian sphere that we kind of operate in, so common of the time, whenever we sin, whenever we experience those shortcomings, we feel like God doesn't love us anymore. He's not pleased with us. We cultivate the mentality that God is this fluctuating, vacillating, mutable God who turns on a dime. Christian, recall to your mind Romans chapter eight. How should you respond when you sin? You should hate it. You should confess it. You should repent from it. You should forsake it. You should flee from it. But when you sin, when you sin, You get back up on that horse and you set the eyes of your heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you pursue him with hot, unmitigated zeal. What can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus your Lord? Paul tells us nothing in the entire created order. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you're in Christ and you're united to the son of his love. And he views you as his own son, clothed and robed in the spotless garments of salvation and the righteous robe that he provides. Christian, would you behold the love of God that he has for you in Christ? Would you warm yourself by the fires of this love? The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the Lord loves you, not today, Christian, because of anything that you are doing or being or saying or thinking, but he loves you still because his great heart is full of love and it runneth over to you. John Owen, the prince of the Puritans, said, this is the glory of love the most orient pearl in the crown of it. It's not mercenary or self-ended or deserved, but as a spring or fountain, it freely vents or pours itself out on its own account. Its constancy and unchangeableness is another star of imminent magnitude in the heaven of love. Listen to this. It is not fading, a wavering and altering thing, but it abides forever. It may be eclipsed or obscured for a season, but changed or turned away, it cannot be. It cannot be. Brothers and sisters, this is the message of the book of Hosea. Despite the persistent spiritual adultery of the people of God and the breaking of the covenant, God continues to love his people with an irrevocable, unbreakable, steadfast, enduring love. While the book of Hosea was addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel in the latter half of the eighth century, its message is vitally relevant to your life tonight, Christian. As Mark Dever says, we are the objects, the unfaithful objects, of the ever faithful love of God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is the love to which we sing. Could we with ink the ocean fill and with the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder this evening of your steadfast love, your enduring love, your persistent love. God, we would be nothing without it. We would be lost forever, condemned to hell. God, we're so fickle in our hearts. We change from one moment to the next. But oh God, you do not change. You remain the same forever. And God, you have loved us with an irrevocable love in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for myself and I pray for every single person here tonight that we would be more committed, more established, more firmly rooted and grounded in your great love, that we would bask in the glories of your great love, that we would warm ourselves by the fire of your great love, God, would you do that work in us for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.